these words she said she said well let us let us not be seduced by thinking we'll be better if we forget you know we'll be better if we remember and we'll be stronger if we remember i'm mitch and i'm missy we're co-workers he's the boss and we're married and she's the boss together we host good faith weekly a podcast on faith and culture what could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Oh, f- see. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up. We're also going to talk about the terrible events unfolding in the state of Israel this week. And then later on the pod, we sat down with Robert P. Jones. Robert's got a new book out titled The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. It is a difficult episode this week, but I do believe one that you're not going to want to miss. Hello there, Missy. Hey, how are you? I am not well. So... Remember about a month ago when we were at an event that had um, an evening of spoken word and slam poetry? I do remember that. that? We were in Austin, and, Texas. Yes. Okay. So do you remember, I, I seem to remember this happening and them telling us the rules because we're new to this type of event, right? Yeah. yeah. Apparently when someone is talking and saying something, right. anyone from the audience can say rewind. Yes. And they're forced to go back Correct. To, and say something again, which was yes. super fun, right? right? So right now I just want to declare rewind. Yeah, no doubt. And I want to go back to last week's episode when the biggest drama we had to address was Kevin McCarthy being <laughs> ousted as speaker. Exactly. Because what has taken place this week is just so unspeakable. It is. Um, For anybody who has been living under a rock, uh, everybody knows uh, the headlines in the news this week was last Saturday, Hamas launched a barbaric attack against the people of Israel. And it was heinous. It was cowardice and needs to be condemned in the most harshest manner. And so Good Faith Media, we do so. It was just it was evil incarnated. And what we're hearing, uh, not only in those preliminary days uh, immediately afterwards, but even we're almost a week out since the attack, it's just atrocious. I mean, the killing of children, the raping of women, the taking of hostages, uh, it's just, it needs to be condemned at all levels from all peoples. And I'm, I, I do so in the strongest sense. Absolutely. So I, in trying to figure out what we can say off the cuff or talk about in this time, um, just kind of decided to go back to our articles that have come out this week and look at those and glean some wisdom from those. And in doing so just decided, you know what, I think this is a good time to hear from our contributors and some of what they're saying. And so I pulled some quotes. I encourage everyone after this episode, if you haven't read these articles, to go read them. We have some brilliant and thoughtful minds um, contributing to to our materials. And I, I'll start with an, an excerpt from the GFM, the Good Faith Media staff statement um, that we uh, put out earlier this week. And, and just a couple of statements from that to set the tone. 
says people of good faith condemn acts of violence toward all people regardless of religious affiliation. We also recognize that conflict never occurs in a vacuum. It goes on to say, In the coming days, we will share thoughts from an array of voices on the recent events in the Middle East. We want these reflections to provoke curiosity, empathy, and kindle movements that lead to justice and peace. So that sets the tone for the week of articles that we've had from different um, contributors, all from different faith perspectives. Yeah. And sharing their thoughts and just what's going on in their hearts. And I hope that all of these are taken in the spirit in which they are intended. There's so, there's been so many reactions immediately following the attacks uh, in Israel uh, by Hamas. And, you know, you can categorize these in a num- number of ways. The appropriate and initial response should be the condemnation of these attacks. These are heinous. Uh, these are evil. And they need to be condemned in the strongest sense of the word. Secondly, there needs to be some sympathy towards those who are suffering. There needs to be compassion. There needs to be love. There needs to be uh, a, a shoulder to cry on and arms to, to fall into because people, the Jewish people in particular, are hurting and are raw and have been victimized by these attacks. And then there's another reaction to this that we have seen across social media uh, and among other platforms, and that is an analysis of the situation. But the first two reactions, I think, are very appropriate and must be uh, must be communicated in the strongest sense. One is condemnation, and the other is compassion for the Jewish people. And then there's going to be time for analysis. As we look at this this content or this situation that has unfolded in the Middle East, right. So I'm going to read some excerpts from our contributors as they are again grieving, right, with with uh, the people in the Middle East as they are trying to process some of what some of whom have family over there they're trying to get in touch with. So um, I I hope that you will take this in the spirit in which it is intended. So from Rabbi Jack Moline, he says, The people who crossed from Gaza into Israel with murderous intent were not soldiers. They were not militants. At best, they were terrorists. That is, intent on causing extreme fright in innocent people. And he goes on to say, "We We each have choices to make as this conflict unfolds, the first of which is life or death. There are many choices that follow, but they all flow from that first one. The choice of death means more and more death. The choice of life opens every other possibility. Therefore, choose life. Mm. From Miguel De La Torre, his article entitled A Violent Tale of Two Cities. He says, we misread the current situation if we believe that this display of violence only started on Saturday. It has been simmering for the past 75 years. Saturday's launching of rockets is not the start of violence, but its continuation. This leads us to ask, What is the root of this continuing violence? And he goes on to say, we can hope for peace, but can there ever truly be peace absent of justice? Mm. Which I think is an important thing to contemplate. And the thing I think we need to to vocalize right now is that I don't believe any of our authors, anyone uh, within the Good Faith Media ecosystem is trying to equivocate what happened Saturday with previous events in this conflict. 
everybody that I know of has condemned these actions by Hamas as heinous and evil and barbaric, as they should. Those who are providing the analysis of the situation are trying to come to understand the environment in which this took place. Unfortunately, there are factions within any people group, and in this particular case, the the Palestinians, Hamas, and other organizations who use violence to propagate their agenda. I would say the same thing about the state of Israel. I'd say the same thing about the United States of America, Christianity. I I mean, any, any, seriously, any people group, there's a faction within those people groups that use violence as a means to make their point. And those people need to be denounced in every sense. At the same time, there is room for analysis to see what that environment has become that has brought us to this moment. And I think there are times for that. There are moments for that where we do need to take a hard look at why these things have happened uh, to make certain that they don't happen in the future because we're all trying to strive for peace. And as Miguel states in his article, you cannot have peace without justice. So we have to look at the situation while at the same time condemning strongly the acts of violence like we saw on Saturday. I agree. And I kept thinking about as I was reading these articles and just gleaning a lot of wisdom from them is that, you know, at Good Faith Media, our purpose is to provide reflection. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's very much what uh, these contributors are doing is providing reflection and insight. And and to echo what Jack said in his article, I mean, the, the, the sole purpose, I think, at the core of a majority of the world's religions, especially the Abrahamic faiths, is the notion to choose life. To choose life, to live with love and compassion and hope and joy. And that is the essence of all religion and hopefully all human beings. When that is absent, then we get situations like we saw unfold on Saturday and situations that we have seen unfold throughout history. So I want to go on and read a couple of more quotes I've pulled. And one is from Rabbi, Rabbi Rachel Ain, who says, being a part of a faith community often means providing comfort to those in pain. Being Jewish means being part of not only a faith community, but also being part of a family and a global people. Mm. And I think that's so important for us to remember to recognize that our faith communities dictate that we are also part of a global people. The thing I really liked about Rabbi Ain's quote is the fact that she says to be Jewish is to be human. And I've wrestled with this a lot, Missy. What is my top priority as a person of faith? Is it to be a Christian Or is it to be a good human being? And the older I get, and I hope wiser, I'm shifting that notion to be my responsibility is to be a good human being. Hopefully my Christian faith leads me to be a better human being because I have to recognize we are in a 
global community filled with other human beings who follow other religions. So my top priority is truly to be the best human being I can possibly be. So put a pin in that because we're going to get to your article in a minute. (laughs) So I do want to talk about Imam Imad and Chauncey's article that he wrote. He says, uh, in allowing these atrocities to continue, we risk losing sight of the fact that all human beings have the right to live free from threats to their safety. We risk becoming blind to the reality that this is a multifaceted conflict where the actions of either side do not occur in a vacuum. We risk giving up on our goal of finding a path to justice and peace for the Palestinian people. And the deepest risk of all is the loss to our own humanity if we reduce the incalculable lives lost to simple collateral damage in a war 75 years in the making. And he says also in his article is we hope for a time when peace and justice will flow through our lands. I was so interested to hear what our our rabbi friends had to say this week. In the same light, I was also really interested to hear what Ahmad said, because Ahmad is a Palestinian refugee living here in the state of Oklahoma. And to know his story and to know him as a person makes me a better human being, because he could not condemn the actions that we have seen unfold on Saturday and previous actions by other groups more strongly. Mm -hmm. He condemns all violence. At the same time, he obviously has a special place for the Palestinian people because he is one. And he talks about their struggle and he talks about their identity and their yearning for freedom and personhood and statehood and it's it's a compelling story that he tells. And so these three voices in particular this week have spoken to me. Uh, Rabbi Jack Moline, Rabbi Rachel Ain, and Ahmad and Chauncey, uh, all of them have spoken to me deeply, and I appreciate their words. So we're going to kind of end our opening segment, and I hope you don't mind, but I've pulled your article um, I would I would suggest that, that everyone go and read all of these articles, but I've basically pulled the bulk of your article. You can either read it or I can. What would you prefer? Uh, I, I I I would rather you read it <laughs> <laughs> because I I feel like it was I feel like it was well done. So well, thank you. Kudos Appreciate that. to you. I have adapted a little bit for oratory here, but I do want to kind of wrap our conversation up sure. with your words. And your article is entitled "Rachel Weeps." And I will try to get through it. (laughs) Hang on. The world is weeping at the loss of innocent lives in Israel and Gaza. Hamas's barbaric violence conducted on innocent and unsuspecting Israeli citizens is an affront to natural law and a violation of divine justice. Anyone, both Israeli and Palestinian sympathizers, must condemn such violence, no matter the perpetrators. And now that open war has broken out across the region, the real victims of this extended conflict will be the innocent Jewish and Palestinian families attempting to live out their lives in peace. For them, I weep. The echoes of these cries travel as far back as the Christian scriptures. The Gospel of Matthew recalls Herod, after receiving word from the Magi that the Jewish Messiah had possibly been born, issuing an edict to murder every male child under two. 
As Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus fled to Egypt, Matthew quotes the prophet Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. While there have been varied responses to the attacks over the weekend, I remain spiritually numb to the reality of our existence. Like Rachel, I refuse to be comforted because I am, unfortunately, learning more and more about the bleakness of the world where I dwell. As a person of faith seeking to understand and advocate for all faiths, I remain appalled at the level of callousness among the faith community. There are moments when making a pointed argument is less important than offering a soft shoulder. Hearing from rabbis, imams, and Christian clerics, some are feeling abandoned by communities attempting to force them into a position that would require the dehumanization of other individuals. At this news, I keep hearing the reason behind Rachel's refusal to be comforted. Her children are no more. The innocent Jews murdered by Hamas this week are no more. The innocent Palestinians losing their lives to Israel's military response, they are no more. To the thousands of Jews, Muslims, and Christians who have died because of this long conflict, they are no more. For all of them, I weep. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, Violence begets violence, hate begets hate, and toughness begets a greater toughness. It is all a descending spiral, and the end is destruction for everybody. Along the way of life, someone must have enough sense and morality to cut off the chain of hate. If any hope is left for this conflict, it will be in the emerging generations taking their sacred texts to heart and applying them to real-world circumstances. For too long, we have given lip service, doing little to quell the violence and death we witness. For too long, we have clung to religious dogmas as though the divine cared about our temporal sectarianism. The time has come for peace-loving and justice-seeking people of faith to solidify our efforts to bring about a world all our faiths demand, one of love justice, and hope for everyone. Who will wipe away Rachel's tears and calm her soul? Who will offer her the alternative the world needs? Peace, shalom, and salam. Until someone or some people, and I will, I will add, until we step up, then we will continue to weep with her. This week, the only prayers I can offer are my tears for everybody, and that sometimes is the only thing that we can do as people of faith. Right. Because we stand at these moments of darkness and wonder what the future holds. And so as we weep, we do look towards the horizon, hoping that a sunrise is possible. But right now, it's difficult to see it. But we hope for it. I agree. Well, it's been a very heavy week. Uh, Our thoughts and good wishes and well wishes are for everybody. Uh, Again, we weep for all the victims that we're hearing about uh, in Israel and the Palestinian citizens who are losing their lives as well in this conflict. Uh, It's just just tragic, and we condemn, again, we condemn these just barbaric actions by Hamas that took place that has led to this war now. Well, you and I sat down with Robert P. Jones this week. His books in the past have really uh, helped me kind of understand white supremacy, uh, just to, to put it in its context, to see its ramifications that reverberate in today's culture 
And this particular book that he has right now out on shelves titled The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future is one of the best books that I have ever read personally because he connects America's atrocities towards indigenous peoples with the atrocities that unfolded with the descendant the slaves and descendants of slaves here in America and why white supremacy is the common thread that runs through them all. So it's a wonderful book. It's a great conversation that we have with Robert or Robbie, as we called him in the interview. Uh, but That's uh, what he told us to call him. We weren't being disrespectful. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so stay tuned. Uh, hope you enjoy the interview. You know, Missy, I really enjoy recording this podcast with you each and every week. Do you? Well, <laughs> uh, but this is not the only thing we do at Good Faith Media. It's not. We have so many offerings for you. We have a plethora of podcasts, videos, news and opinion articles, Bible studies, books, and much, much more. Find us at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us. Robert P. Jones is the president and founder of Public Religion Research Institute, PRRI. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future, as well as White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. He is also the author of The End of White Christian America. His newest book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future, is available wherever you purchase reading materials. Robert, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, we are just delighted that you're here. Um, I have a, a, a hard copy of the book. I've also downloaded the book. I've listened to it twice. And, <laughs> He's not uh, kidding. Uh, I'm either. not kidding. Yeah. And worked through the hard copy I with... I just noticed that. You've yeah. got a thousand <laughs> stickies and you've listened to it twice. Yeah, so. absolutely. Wow. All right. So this is just, I mean, this really struck a chord with me. I've read all of your other previous books. They were outstanding. But this one in particular because of my heritage and ancestry mm. as a Muscogee Creek really, really resonated with me. So I've been so excited. Missy can testify. I've been so excited about this interview this week. Uh, so let's begin. We have admired your work and uh, at PRRI for so long and your previous books and your new book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future, digs deeper into the issue of white supremacy in this country and its legacy. But before we get into white supremacy's theological and political underpinnings, let's point out some obvious, even though ignored, realities. Before European colonialism, there were thriving cultures around the world. Can you speak on why you think those of us who are descendants of European uh uh, lineage often devalue or outright ignore pre-colonial history in other parts of the world. Yeah, you don't say. There were people here. Um, <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Did you did you watch uh, Res Dogs on uh, FX? I have uh, not. Oh my no, gosh, I have Hulu. It's um, it's so good. Certainly, the hard show. Who's Muskogee Creek is the writer, creator, and director of it. Yeah. And the home that one of the kids lives in, its address, hand to God, is fourteen ninety one. It's just fantastic. So, yeah. so sorry, I didn't yeah. need to interrupt. 
No, I mean, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting, you know, when you look back at and and I should say one of the growing edges for me in this book was to really lean into that interaction, kind of early interactions between Europeans and the indigenous people um, on this continent and to try to better understand, um, you know, what that was like. I mean, yeah, there were cities here uh, in the Americas that were bigger than London. Uh, right. Um, you know, uh, and would dwarf, you know, Paris and other kinds of cities that we think of as these bastions of European civilization. But, you know, when you, you read Columbus's remarks, remarks of many other early European um, uh, explorers, what you what you hear them saying is like these people have no religion. Uh, these people have no, you know, um, civilization. Uh, and there's this kind of just this. Uh, and, and, and the land was talked about as uh, kind of the Garden of Eden or as terra nullis, like literally empty land um, mm-hmm. is the way that you know many people were um, from Europe were, were referring to it. So there was from the beginning, I think, a devaluing. Um, uh, well, first of all, we should just kind of realize that the early explorers had no idea where they were. <laughs> right. uh, Columbus uh, thought he was in Asia right when he arrived here. Um, until his third voyage, in fact, that he figures out, oh, actually, this is a, a new land that I that we don't have mapped um, here. But I, I think there was just this tendency to, you know, it was very uh, to see Europe as the center of the world. It was the only place that had civilization in the minds of Europeans, um, and so that was the the worldview that came came to it. And and really, you know, even my own upbringing i mean in so i went to you know i grew up in, in jackson mississippi went to public schools um in jackson mississippi got almost no native american history um to speak of in my public school um education got some um you know spotty uh stuff on uh the civil war and um uh and and some on the civil rights movement not much uh, actually but virtually nothing on the native american uh, despite the fact that you know, the, like the local college I went to, our mascot, the Choctaws, right? <laughs> right, uh, right. But yet, uh, no history of kind of uh, that the land the college was sitting on, mm-hmm. right, was Choctaw land, right, mm-hmm. uh, before the Trail of Tears. Right. So, Robbie, let's talk a minute about the Doctrine of Discovery. Yeah. I I want to say, first of all, I, I, I feel bad that this was something, uh, a concept that came into my you know, purview later in life, like you said, we didn't really learn about this in, in history class, maybe other than a, a, I don't know, a term in the glossary or something. And you mentioned in the beginning of the book that this was something you also did not really learn about. I believe maybe it was seminary even was, is, am I remembering that right when it came into your purview? But here's the thing that got me when you said the Pope and when he was being interviewed by the indigenous woman and she mentioned Dr. Discovery, and he said, I don't understand what that is. I was floored by yeah. that. So let's take a minute, understanding yeah. that so many of us, even if, like me, I'd heard the term but didn't fully understand it and how it permeates everything. So pretend I'm the Pope. Tell me about Doctrine <laughs> of Discovery. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, you're right. It, it's also something. So I have a Ph.D. in religion. I have a seminary degree. And it is just not something that figured prominently at all. And I've taken plenty of religious history classes, and it was just never something featured um, as, as as anything central, right, to how to our uh, world today. 
Um, so the doctor of discovery is a term that really is describing a set of papal documents in the uh, 14, late 1400s. Um, uh, so uh, the documents, the kind of principal ones are between 1452 and 1493. Uh, they're issued by the head of the Western Christian Church um, at that time. Uh, it's worth remembering this is before the Protestant Reformation, uh, so there are no Protestants in the world. Um, uh, it's before the break of the Church of England with the Catholic Church, uh, so there are no Anglicans in the world. All of Western Christianity is essentially Catholic, uh, and the head of all of Western European Christianity is the Pope in, in Rome. Um, and so essentially the reason why it develops is because of this experience that we were talking about. It, it really is early European contact with people and lands they had no idea even existed. And so this presented some political conundrums um, and it presented some moral and religious and theological uh, conundrums. So what do we, what do we do? Um, as what Europeans with what's our responsibility toward these people? Um, uh, and it turns out that so they turned to the highest authority, moral and religious authority that existed. They turned to the Vatican, the Pope. And there began to be these this development of theology. Um, uh, it was really a new theology for the quote unquote new world. Um, to, and it was essentially answering the question, what rights do the people of those lands have uh, that European Christians are bound to respect? And it, it's, you know, you can read them. There's actually a, a good website called the thedoctorofdiscovery.org um, that you can go and read the documents for yourself and you can read them in Latin if you can, or you can read them in English. Um, uh, but And so, you know, they have all the kind of formal theological constructs, but they really boil down to something quite simple. Uh, and, and it turns out that the, 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 um, the, the criteria for answering that question of what rights these newly discovered people had uh, that Europeans were bound to respect came down to one simple criteria, and that is, are they Christian? Hmm. Um, and if the answer to that was no, then they were to be considered, quote unquote, enemies of Christ. Uh, and as enemies of Christ, then their land could be taken, their goods could be stolen. Um, and if they resisted, they could be killed, um, or in the um, the words of the document itself, of one of the, these papal bulls themselves, uh, uh, they had permit the Europeans had permission to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, right? That is from the hand of the head of the Western Christian Church. So all that means that um, this theology that developed it was basically a theology of conquest, um, and it developed, and it means that that is what really set the moral compass mm -hmm. uh, for the version of Christianity that landed. Um, on these shores. You know, one of the things I really appreciated about the book, especially the introductory chapters of the book, is that you not only outline this doctrine of discovery and its uh, origins, but you also kind of measure it against some very important dates that what we would define as the creation of this American experiment that we're all a part of. So you mentioned those years, 1491 to 1493 in particular, but then also you talk about uh, the 1619 project uh, as well as 1776 and the revolution, mm -hmm. the American revolution here. What is interesting to me about all three of those dates, whether it is uh, Columbus landing on the shores of the Bahamas or 1619 or 1776. The reality is the doctrine of discovery influenced each and every one of those moments. And still does. No, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's right. Um, you know, as I said, it, it really did 
set the kind of moral and religious orientation mm-hmm. uh, of Europeans uh, from from the get go, right? So whether we're talking about the transatlantic slave trade, um, which the sixty nineteen projects centered, mm-hmm. um, you know, and and its uh, kind of argument about uh, how we should think about the beginnings of the country, um, or even seventeen seventy six, uh, right? You know, we think about that the Declaration of Independence. Um, you know, as uh, this document has all these kind of rightly has these principles we should be very proud of in the document. But, you know, you can't get through reading that document without reading um, uh, a complaint about the merciless savages, Mm -hmm. right, that are here uh, in this country. And that's the way indigenous people are talked about in the Declaration of Independence, right? So it's there. Uh, it's there in the Constitution, um, you know, um, just just a, a little more than a decade later, um, where Indians are Indians are ex- like that's the word used. Indians are explicitly ex- excluded mm-hmm. uh, from the rights, um, you know, in, in the Constitution. So yeah, it's 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 a kind of moral and religious attitude, but then gets in, kind of uh, infused into our legal documents, our cultural documents. It's really shot through uh, with with this with this idea of the doctor of discovery. Yeah. Well, as informative as this first part of the book is, uh, the real uh, eye-opening moments of the book come in the three set of sections following that introduction. And you brill- brilliantly uh, connect the treatment of Americans' indigenous peoples with its treatment of African descendants. So let's begin with the first set of stories you bring to light, the treatment of indigenous peoples along the Mississippi Delta and the murder mm-hmm. of Emmett Till. How did the 13, or the 1830 Indian Removal Act lead to the murder of Emmett Till in 1955? Yeah, well, as it's one of the things I try to do in the book is to hold these stories together because we so often have, like, we have kind of African-American history over here and Native American history. Right. Even when we have it, it's way over there. Um, and we don't really see the interconnections between the two. Um, and I think one of the, the things that that does is it prevents the real connective tissue is the way that European Christians op- operated and behaved vis-a-vis these two people. Uh, and you can start to see the, the some very similarities. So, you know, in Mississippi, um, if you kind of think about going backwards and you ask, well, how do we get to a society that thinks it's okay um, and actually acquits two murderers of a 14-year-old African-American boy um, you know, for whistling at a white woman um, at a store and tortured and killed him. And a jury uh, of white men uh, acquits the two killers, you know, within uh, just a little over an hour's time of deliberation. Like, how do we get to a society where that's even possible? And so we kind of like, you know, you wind your way back. So you get to Jim Crow, right? And the kind of segregation and that preservation of this kind of white and Christian uh, hierarchical society with people who are white and Christian on top and everybody else below there. But if you keep going back, right, you get to the civil war and enslavement. Uh, but if you keep moving um, and that's where I think often history stops there, but if you keep moving, yeah, you get to the 1830s um, and the re- forced removal of the Choctaw uh, uh, and the Creek and the Chickasaw from, from, from Mississippi uh, there. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's even in some of our most, um, uh, prominent uh, uh, documents and books that we still read, like Alexei de Tocqueville's mm-hmm. uh, Democracy in America, right? That gets assigned still uh, in graduate schools um, all over the place. Um, I read it in graduate school, uh, but what was not assigned 
was the section where he talks about the Trail of Tears. He was right. actually in Mississippi yeah. uh, and witnessed um, this force removal. You know, and he says, like, the sufferings, I have not the power to communicate. It was so horrific a scene. Um, it was dead of winter, many, no provisions, uh, people being kind of forcibly marched and then loaded onto steamboats, pushed across the Mississippi River to Oklahoma, uh, you know, from, uh, from, from Mississippi. So, you know, what's linking all that together is this sense of European Christian chosenness, mm-hmm. right? That these lands were destined by God to be a kind of promised land for European Christians. So it justifies the genocide and forced removal of indigenous people. It justifies the kidnapping and enslavement of, and the capture of labor of, of Africans. Um, and it justifies Jim Crow and ultimately the killing of Emmett Till. So, Robbie, the next kind of section, you point out something that I had never realized before and I'm still scratching my head a bit about, but you talk about President Abraham Lincoln's tenure and Mm -hmm. him signing the execution order for 39 Dakota men within one month of signing the Emancipation Proclamation Order of 1863. So my first question is, Make it make sense. (laughs) Um, But then you also, there's a connecting story leading into 1920 when three um, African descendants working with a circus were lynched by a mob after um, being accused of raping a white woman. And so more than any other, these stories demonstrate just the complexities of America's very complicated history regarding race. So I want to talk a little bit about how even some of our greatest minds, like Lincoln that we just talked about, succumb to just this white supremacy, this evil of white supremacy. Yeah. And, and, you know, those, those stories you decided are not from the South. Right. right? And we kind of think about, you know, the South or, you know, our very conservative states like Oklahoma, you know, places where this kind of white racial violence kind of erupts. But, um, you know, I wanted to make sure I told those stories because they're from Minnesota. Right. I mean, you're snug, snuggled right up to Canada up there. You can't get much northern uh, than, than Minnesota, um, you know. And, yeah, there are, again, these stories linking um, this kind of white racial violence toward African-Americans who were lynched in 1920. Uh, but that story, you know, sits right behind, again, a very similar story, the forced removal of the Dakota people um, from, uh, uh, from from Minnesota and, you know, and, and in the hand of Abraham Lincoln, you do see the complexity there that, you know, at the same time he's, I think we often forget Emancipation Proclamation was something that he thought about and, and it actually decided he was going to do mm-hmm. for quite a long time and had it sitting on his desk waiting for a union victory because he, he didn't want to release it. He wanted to do it at a politically opportune time at a time of strength when they had won a military battle, not when they were being defeated. Um, and so it was sitting, he was sitting and waiting. Uh, for a, um, a, a, a yeah union victory, and in the meantime, uh, there had been a, 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 a such a, a war that erupted in Minnesota between indigenous people um, and the federal government there um, and, and state officials there, mostly because they had been cheating and withholding the Dakota people from uh, things that were guaranteed to them by treaties, um, and to the point where they were starving, and so there was an up, a violent uprising. Um, uh, uh, there. And at the end of it, it was put down by federal forces and 300 uh, Dakota men were taken prisoner. And the local officials, uh, Henry Sibley, um, they wanted to execute all 300 mm-hmm. of them. And that's actually what they sent to Abraham Lincoln um, uh, to get permission from the president to uh, try them with military tribunals and execute them. 
Uh, and, um, you know, it, it's complicated because Lincoln doesn't sign off on that. Um, he delays it. Um, he and, he and he commutes the census of all but 38 uh, men, but he does sign the death warrants, uh, you know, the execution authorization for 38 Dakota men who were, it's, it's still the, the largest mass execution uh, that's ever been carried out by the United States. Uh, it was carried out the day after Christmas, um, uh, you know, um, in, in, um, in 1862. So, uh, and, and yeah, signed off on by, by Abraham Lincoln, you know, while, and he had these two documents, he was deliberating over them I mean, basically at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Missy, so right in the question itself, and thank you for your answer. It just, it goes to the complexity of some of America's greatest leaders. I mean, not only Lincoln, but we think yeah. of Washington and Jefferson and Madison, all slaveholders uh, talking about, you know, uh, individual rights and the freedoms of, of mankind. Yet they had, you know, enslaved people in their own right. It, and yeah. it's, it's just interesting. And Lincoln's time in, just to mention, I mean, yeah. Lincoln's time in Kentucky. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and Illinois were, I mean, he was a, he was a colonist, right? right. A colonizer, right? Um, uh, in, in Kentucky, uh, and was part of the push, uh, the kind of push of your people of European descent pushing indigenous people off their, off their land. Yeah. So, and it just it speaks to what we're trying to go through today or what our country is going through today in the fight about educating our next generations and some people wanting to eliminate some of these truths and uphold our founders and greatest leaders as some what you know, deified as though they never made mistakes. Mm-hmm. But there are those of us who say that they're still brilliant individuals. They have you know, created this form of government that is just remarkable. But at the same time, let's be honest about who they truly were. They were, you know, fallible individuals and and show their fallacies at the same time. To me, that speaks more of the greatness of the American experiment than trying to mythologize it. No, I think that's right. Um, you know, I, I do see this this movement to, you know, literally whitewash history, um, you know, as a kind of backlash to a moment of reckoning that we're in. I mean, right. I do think there is a push that's been um, successful at telling a more honest, truer history um, of the country, of our founders, and, and and reconsidering who we think of when we say that word founder, right? Um, sure. uh, do we go? How far do we go back? Um, and, and who counts in that story? So I, I think that it's mostly a backlash. I think to this push to tell to widen the aperture. Uh, like the 6019 project has done. I think like I'm hoping that my book will help do kind of bring it back to 1493. Um, uh, but the, but the pushback against that is really to tell, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a kind of history of impossible innocence mm-hmm. um, that, that is trying to tell. Um, it reminds me of kind of a, you know, children's fairy tale more than it does um, anything like right. uh, real history that, that we as adults ought to be able to handle, sure. right. Um, the complexity uh, of, of, of our real history. I mean, you know, but, I, but I think it, it, it's being resisted because it, it points to uh, issues of injustice mm-hmm. that the country's still wrestling with. And in many cases has, has never fully wrestled with. All right. The last section of your book, uh, the last set of stories deals with the Trail of Tears and the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. And Robbie, as I've told you, this spoke just volumes to me personally. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation. Uh, Two things I want to preface this question by. One, I had never heard of the 21 Race Riot or Race Massacre until later on in life. 
uh, until I was in college and yeah. you know, it was introduced to me, but I, I lived literally within three miles of Greenwood and never heard of black wall street or the massacre that took place there in 21. Wow. Also as a citizen of the Muskogee Creek nation, my great grandmother and her sister and our audience knows the story were taken to the boarding school at Schlocko mm. in Northern Oklahoma, uh, away from their kids. And they experienced all the atrocities that we've heard about from those boarding schools during uh, the 19 teens and twenties. I didn't hear that story <laughs> until I was an adult. Well, wow. what happened to those indigenous peoples especially along the South and in the Carolinas brought over here is this direct that to me, the, the other stories certainly you know, brought this to justice, but this story in particular from the trail of tears to the 21 race massacre demonstrates this thread of white supremacy within this country more than any other. What did you learn in studying these events? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you one quick uh, digression here um, that's similar to your story. So I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, I live nine miles from uh, the house that Meg Evers mm-hmm. uh, lived in um, and was gunned down in the driveway of. Uh, and I, I never heard his name at all. Right. Uh, so it was not until well after college that I, I heard his his name. Uh, I grew up in, in Mississippi, uh, I could have told you the name of Emmett Till, but I couldn't have told you anything about his story, right. really. You know, and and I think it's similar. I heard this this all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. That the, there were this awful things of of white expressions of white racial violence, and then this very intentional attempt to cover it up. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what happened in Oklahoma as well. Um, uh, you know, I mean the the uh, the, the the head of the um, uh, Tulsa Historical Society in the 80s was denying that it even happened. That's right. the head of the Tulsa Historical uh, s- Society. Yeah. So no, those were Mexicans and Indians that did that. That wasn't white people. Right. Um, you know, that um, uh, even if there was violence, it wasn't white people doing it. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's not an accident um, that you didn't hear about this or that I didn't hear about this. I mean, there was an explicit uh, uh, effort at forgetting Mm-hmm. Um, that you know that that has taken place, and and now I think there's an explicit effort at remembering uh, here, and that's kind of what I'm hoping to to, to lean uh, lean into. And I, I like you, I, mean, I didn't grow up hearing about um, the Tulsa race massacre either. It wasn't really until um, you know it was starting to make national headlines ahead of the 100th anniversary uh, that it really hit my radar mm-hmm. uh, screen um, uh, as well. And then even then, I didn't know the story. Uh, that happened right up the road um, uh, of the reign of terror uh, among the Osage. Um, right. right. We're about to have a new all movie. Uh, the, the country will know that story. Yes, uh, very well. Read the, the, the book Killers of the Fire Moon. They'll know it when the big blockbuster movie um, is out what, next week. Next week. It's, it's really, mm-hmm. Yes, very, very soon. Um, uh, but, but even then, you know, still trying to see, oh, what links uh, all of that violence of um, kind of, white people trying to steal, you know, head rights uh, to uh, inherit the, the kind of oil uh, money among the Osage and, and what gets them to the where they are uh, on, on those lands in the first place um, and, and what links that and Greenwood um, is, again, you could tie it all back to this this really thread of white supremacy 
justified by Christian theology. Uh, and what I was stunned by, one of the things I, I dug up when I was doing the research uh, around the Tulsa Race Massacre was the sermon that was preached at Boston Avenue yes. uh, Methodist Church the Sunday after the massacre, right? And and they brought up the bishops. They brought the big gun up to speak in the pulpit from Dallas. Um, and because they knew that whatever got spoken from that pulpit was going to spin it, mm-hmm. essentially, uh, for the elite mm-hmm. uh, and the white elite in town. And he essentially blamed the violence on the black population of Tulsa, um, uh, even though they were the victims. So he, he literally blamed the victims there. And the only thing he had to say um, uh, that was critical of the white population, very wealthy church that he was speaking to, um, was that perhaps they had not been strict enough with the help, right? right? With the black people right. working, the domestic people working in their houses, uh, that they had let vice uh, you know, live among the help. And if they had been stricter with them, uh, and, and, you know, as this is very paternalistic, awful, you know, statement, then, uh, this, this big outbreak of violence, uh, you know, wouldn't have taken place despite that it was roving bands of white people killing black people at will over a period of a couple of days. Um, mm-hmm. and Tulsa, this, that was the real story there. Yeah. It's yes. Listening to that sermon, cause I listened to the audiobook was so cringy. Um, and very difficult to reckon with. But like I think you mentioned in the book, that sermon and that narrative just became interwoven and became the narrative of that yeah, the entire mayor, the time. Yeah, the picked it up, you know. And, yeah. you know, when we went over to Tulsa for the 100th anniversary um, of the massacre and and just looking around and even, you know, talking to his family members, and once you ask questions, then they'll say, oh, yeah. I remember this, that, and the, you know, there were still family members who remember hearing stories of folks fleeing Tulsa during that time. Yeah. And, and you just, I, I don't have the answer as to why those stories weren't talked about even amongst family members. I know why the black community didn't, it was for fear, but even yeah. in, um, you know, some of the white folks that we ran into who said, Oh, my dad or my granddad told this story of black folks coming to the door asking for food or for help or, to hide them out. I don't understand why, mm. you know, the, the white folks aren't passing down these. I just, I can't make it make sense. I have no, nothing to add, but just yeah. it's perplexing. Well, as Robbie, you know, indicates in his book, it's just the power of white supremacy. It's a system that is so powerful that it quells and quiets voices, even if they're well-meaning voices. Uh, and that's one of the things that Robbie has done such a great job with his books and uh, the Institute has trying to bring that to light. So, okay, this has been kind of heavy. It has been really heavy. <laughs> so, Robbie, you know, as, as you read the book and, and have t- talked about today, just some of the heartbreak and some of the just gross injustices that have happened, you do talk a little bit about those folks who are attempting to be truthful about history and yeah. to work towards justice. So. Tell our listeners a little bit about those um, folks and kind of some things that are happening. Give us a little bit of hope as we close our time mm. out. Yeah. No, I do think it's a hopeful book. I mean, the second part of the title, The Past of Shared American Future, I try to lean in uh, to that. And, you know, if I, if I am finding some hope, um, it is in the work that people are doing on the ground um, in each of these um, communities, you know, whether it's uh, and, and in Minnesota and Mississippi and in Oklahoma, um, you know, I did find these groups that have really been investing uh, time. And they're not, you know, these are everyday people. Um, these are not well-funded, you know, highly educated folks. These are like 
everyday people that just decided it was time to tell the truth. Um, and it was time to kind of bring some healing, I think, to these, to, you know, that, that these uh, acts of violence had, had caused to their community. Just to give you one example, you know, from my own home state of Mississippi, um, you know, it was a group of about 20, um, a little more than a dozen, actually, um, descendants of enslaved people and descendants of enslavers. Uh, they got together and said, okay, like, we're going to be the group that breaks the chain. We're going to tell the, the truth about what happened here. Uh, because, you know, as recently as 2000 in Tallahatchie County, Mississippi, where um, the trial was, where Emmett Till was um, abducted and killed, um, there were no markers on the ground at all uh, telling, you know, this story. Uh, so if you've driven through there, you would have seen anything, even though the world essentially kind of knew this story uh, because it was such a, a kind of spark of the early civil rights movement. There was nothing on the ground uh, there. Um, in fact, many people, um, you know, had not heard, uh, even though, uh, you know, Mitch, like you said, even though they grew up in, in Tallahatchie County or Webb County, uh, had not heard the story. Right. Um, and so they wanted to make sure that, that was no longer going to be true. Um, and they just set about, uh, you know, working on this. They worked on it for a couple of decades. It was not linear. It was lots of starts and stops and some failures and some successes, but they have just succeeded Um in um, getting a new national monument. Uh, it's actually that that uh, this is not in the book because it hadn't happened yet. But uh, just last month, uh, President Biden signed into uh, signed a proclamation declaring a new national monument that's going to be the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley National Monument that's going to be jointly located in the Delta of Mississippi and in Chicago, um, where she was where she was from. Uh, but that absolutely would not have happened. That was not a top down thing. That happened because of this work on the ground. Of people who were, you know, and and uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, I think, said something that captures um, uh, at the signing of that proclamation. Um, I was actually able to be there for the reception of, of that at the um, Bureau of the Interior. Um, but she said, um, you know, uh, the, these words. She said, she said, well, let us let us not be seduced by thinking we'll be better if we forget. You know, we'll be better if yeah, we remember absolutely. and we'll be stronger if we remember. Um, and I, I think that's kind of the moment that we're at right now. Um, you know, I think ahead of us is repair and healing and all of that. I think we are really um, leaning in, though, on the moment of kind of confession and truth telling. It's mm -hmm. really the moment um, uh, that we're really at. Um, and, and I find a lot of hope in that because that's the beginning of repentance, changes of behavior, and ultimately repair and, um, uh, and healing. Great. Well, Robert P. Jones, thank you so much for being a guest with us this week on Good Faith Weekly. Uh, Robert's new book is The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. And if you want more of Robert, we are actually going to be in the same location in December at Syracuse University at the Doctrine of Discovery uh, conference. Uh, and we're going to be talking to you a little bit more there. You don't know that yet, but we're going to be interviewing <laughs> again there, uh, for oh, another yeah. podcast. Yeah, right. We uh, haven't even asked if he wants a second date yet. I think... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not asking. Betty Lyons from the American Indian uh, Alliance, is, uh, Indian Law Alliance is asking. So uh, we're really looking forward to that conference and uh, listening to you and, uh, and so many other wonderful speakers up there. But before we let you go, Robbie, we got one last question for you. So, Robbie, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of the work that you do and our conversation today, what is your more to tell? Yeah, I think I'm just going to double down on this last point. I, th I think the more to tell is if there's anything I've been convinced about is that, you know, um, 
the change that we're looking for in the country that's always already underway, I should say, um, you know, is going to happen because of what local people do in local communities with their own local history. Um, and I think wrestling with that, um, you know, is really where it's not, we're not a top down kind of thing. It's going to be a kind of bottom up uh, uh, kind of thing. And, and um, I am just so in awe of the stories um, that I've kind of uncovered in the book and, and again, I could have written 50 chapters on this. It's happening in every state in the country um, as we wrestle with this history. Um, but, you know, it is the case that if we wrestle with it, I mean, that will lay the foundation for a better future for our kids and for our kids' kids. So. Well, Robbie, thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, congratulations on the book. It is absolutely spectacular. And you are welcome back to Good Faith Weekly anytime, my friend. Thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation. Missy, I don't mind saying I really, really enjoyed our time with Robert P. Jones. I know you did. <laughs> I mean, I was geeking out. I have to admit. You still have a bit of a glow about you. <laughs> uh, he, Robbie's just fantastic. Uh, again, as I said in the intro before the interview, I've learned so much from not only his writings and his books, but the research that he does at PRRI. Uh, I use it quite often in my writings to help uh, – educate me uh, and for resources on, on my reflections. So it was just a delight to have him. It really was. I I know we've we've talked about this in, with previous guests who who write about, you know, racism and and the indigenous peoples mm-hmm. and um we've talked about doctrine of discovery, but this book that's kind of the theme right of the book. And I was talking to you the other night after I finished it and just at the frustration, I sort of alluded to it during our interview of our culture or my upbringing or education that I remember hearing the term, Mm -hmm. but it's never fully been acknowledged, at least educationally, of how this permeates every single fabric of our being as a nation. Mm -hmm. And once you look, and that's one thing I think he does such a great job of is looking at through this lens and weaving and showing us how this really permeates everything. Yeah. You know, and that was interesting because, you know, I had, I had heard uh, and heard mention of doctrine of discovery growing up a little bit, never the term itself, but there was always the idea of doctrine of discovery, you know, growing up as an indigenous person in Oklahoma, you hear, you know, a lot of rhetoric about the superiority of the Christian faith and the white culture and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, you know, quite simply, you know, I am a product of that. I mean, my, my mother is Anglo descent. My father is a uh, native descent. And, and so trying to figure out where I belonged in that world and feeling pretty, you know, very much stuck in that, uh, pulled in two different directions. And so, uh, what I appreciated about the book was just the honesty and openness about telling these stories because there wasn't an honesty and openness in these stories growing up. Just didn't hear him. Didn't hear about. And you the, lived right yeah. by one major <laughs> event of uh, the last. I mean, I guess when you were in school, what that would have been sixty years prior, mm-hmm. not even a hundred years prior. Right. You yeah. know. So okay, if if you're, I, I don't I don't understand how that got completely overlooked in your school in your city. But I, will I mean, also, I do uh, white supremacy. But I mean, right. you know what I mean. How did that? 
But I'll also say this, here? you know, a lot of times just growing up in Tulsa in the proximity of, of Greenwood uh, and not hearing that story tale as an adult, um, I didn't hear the story of Bloody Sunday until I was an adult. Mm. I mean, as far as the civil rights movement was concerned, I knew about Rosa Parks. And I knew about MLK. Right. And I knew they killed MLK. That's pretty much all I knew. Wow. And so when we talk about the whitewashing of history, um, it's a real thing. I mean, it is a true real thing because, you know, nobody ever stopped to consider the idea of America was built on stolen lands and the genocide of an entire people. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one ever stopped to tell me, you know what, this incredible um, capitalistic society that we live in and this uh, these cities of industry, as well as the revered farming industry, agricultural industry of America, it was all done by stolen labor. Nobody ever said that. They just, they talked about all the positives and talked about, you know, how you know, rugged everybody was back then and pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. And what they didn't tell me is that those boots that they were strapping on were on the necks of brown and black people. You know, it's funny, as you were talking about history, and I did not grow up in Oklahoma um, you did. <laughs> oh, we so, know you grew up in Texas, right? I the mean, Republic not, of Texas. I'm not saying it's much better. <laughs> but what I am going to say is that our two children grew up in Oklahoma in the school system here. Mm-hmm. And now just connecting that, you know, there was only one semester of Oklahoma history taught oh, our, yeah. our kids in school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember people saying, oh, well, Oklahoma's only been a state, you know, for 100 years, yeah. 100 years. So there's really not much to tell. And I just am now thinking that is so crazy. That is such a wonderful opportunity for the people of the state to teach and to learn the context of what happened in our country. There's mm-hmm. so much history that was brought here mm-hmm. <laughs> forcibly Yeah, that well, can set the foundation for how how we came to be as a state perfect thank you thank you that's a great segue because that's a perfect example so i'm a little kid uh, growing up in tulsa oklahoma it's the 70th anniversary of statehood for oklahoma so my elementary school teachers decided it would be really cool to replicate uh the original coming together of oklahoma and indian territory that took place in guthrie oklahoma when oklahoma became a state and so they dressed me up in native american garb and dress this little blonde haired blue eyed girl by the name of Tracy. I mean, I know the, I'm not going to say her last name, (laughs) dressed her up in this prairie white dress. And we had this faux wedding in the middle of, in front of hundreds of our students (laughs) to celebrate the coming together of Oklahoma and Indian territory uh, for the Oklahoma statehood. Here's what I never learned until the last 10 years was the real reason Oklahoma became a state. And that was that the tribes who were brought here on the Trail of Tears, who were beginning to organize, who were, as we are going to discover next week in the release, the movie release of the 
Killer of the Flower Moon. Killers of the Flower. Killers of the Flower Moon. Is that they were becoming wealthy because of oil. And so as they were gaining influence, they decided, okay, since we got to live in this uh, democratic republic, we're going to apply for statehood. So the tribes came together and drafted their own constitution and applied for statehood under the name the state of Sequoia. The actual constitution is in the archives of the University of Oklahoma's law school. And when they applied for it, as you can imagine, that went over really well among the federal government and Oklahoma Territory. And they said, yeah, we we can't have that. So let's bring these two territories together and create Oklahoma. And guess who gets to rule the state? Was it a white guy? It was a white guy. (laughs) (laughs) So that is why Oklahoma becomes a state, not because of this you know, ruggedness, but because of white supremacy, because they wanted to remain supreme. So do you have time? We're running short on time. Yeah. Do, do you want to tell the quick story about the panhandle and why that's Oh my gosh. Called do everybody, does everybody know why Oklahoma is shaped like a pan? Are you really asking the listener <laughs> audience who cannot in fact raise their hand? Well, I can see it all across you? the country, all across <laughs> North America, wherever they're sitting. They're raising their hand saying yes. Tell Mitch. us, Mitch. <laughs> So, uh, the reason we have a panhandle is that prior to Oklahoma becoming a state, it was called no man's land. And why was it called no man's land? Because Texas sucks. Hey, we don't talk like that on this podcast. Uh, No, the state of Texas, it was actually owned by the state of Texas uh, prior to uh, becoming no man's land. But in the Missouri Compromise, uh, there was uh, a line drawn across the country that said a state could not become a state, could not become a slave-owning state above that parallel. And so instead of, uh, uh, you know, adhering to that law, Texas just redrew their boundary (laughs) At this little bar above the state, Oklahoma wasn't a state at that time, and it was called no man's land. And it was literally a lawless piece piece of land that nobody governed except outlaws. So when Oklahoma becomes a state, the federal government said, "Hey, guess what? You got to take no man's you land." Take no man's land. <laughs> so, so of course we did, and uh, and there you have it. Now Oklahoma looks like a a pan. <laughs> so let me get this straight. So Texas was a slave holding state, yes. but apparently there was a a rule that said you could not be a slave holding state if you were above a certain parallel, parallel correct. Texas did bleed over into that parallel. Yes. So they're like, fine, we'll just give up that territory. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> just make sure I got, Hey, you know what? In Texas, you do get a full year of Texas history. And guess what? <laughs> that wasn't in it. <laughs> that wasn't in it. <laughs> I but know you're shocked. Not shocked. <laughs> but there's a whole three weeks about the Alamo. Oh, at least. At least. <laughs> Ask oh, me what I remember about that. It would be very little. Yeah, they lost. Yeah. Yeah. Your relative was there, actually. I know. I know. Oh. Well, again, we just so much enjoyed having Robbie on the show. Make certain you pick up his book titled The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. It is outstanding. Well, it's been been a pretty heavy show this week. Uh, appreciate the laughs at the end, quite frankly. Uh, but uh, you know, just once again, we want to reiterate our 
deep, deep compassion for the Israelis uh, who are going through just an incredible atrocity right now. And all loss of life over there, innocent life over there is just heartbreaking. And and uh, we're just keeping them in our thoughts and our prayers. And I know that sounds cliche, but as I said, sometimes our tears are the only prayers we can offer. I think that's very well said. Well, hope everybody has a good weekend and we will be back next week. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org. <laughs>